It's a dark day in our nation when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. Something is happening and people are not going to be silent. The truth must be told. And I say that those who are seeking to make it appear that anyone who opposes the war in Vietnam is a fool or a traitor or an enemy of our soldiers, is a person who has taken a stand against the best in our tradition. Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. And so this morning I speak to you on this issue because I am determined to take the gospel seriously. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched the program broken as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. And you may not know it, my friends, it is estimated that we spend $500,000 to kill each enemy soldier while we spend only $53 for each person classified as poor. And much of that $53 goes for salaries to people who are not poor. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attack it as such. Perhaps the more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in extraordinarily high proportion relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by society 
and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schoolroom. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago or Atlanta. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. America and most of its newspapers applauded me in Montgomery and I stood before thousands of Negroes getting ready to riot when my home was bombed and said, we can't do it this way. They applauded us in the sit-in movement. We nonviolently decided to sit in at lunch counters. They applauded us on the freedom rides when we accepted blows without retaliation. Oh, the press was so noble in its applause and so noble in its praise when I was saying, be nonviolent toward Bull Connor. There's something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press that will praise you when you say, be nonviolent toward Jim Clark, but will curse and damn you when you say, be nonviolent toward little brown Vietnamese children. There's something wrong with that press. Another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1964. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was not just something taking place, but it was a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances, but even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and white, for revolutionary and conservative, 
Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mayo as a faithful minister to Jesus Christ? Can I threaten them with death? Or must I not share with them my life? There will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know these people and hear their broken cries. And who are we supporting in Vietnam today? It's a man by the name of General Key who fought with the French against his own people and who said on one occasion that the greatest hero of his life is Hitler. This is who we are supporting in Vietnam today. Oh, our government and the press generally won't tell us these things, but God told me to tell you this morning. The truth must be told. And all the while the people read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. This is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolutions impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that comes from the immense profits of overseas investment. I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say, this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. 
A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just this business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes and with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And it is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing, unconditional love for all men. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of mankind. Let me say finally that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. I speak out against this war not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I'm disappointed with America. And there can be no great disappointment where there is no great love. I'm disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. We are presently moving down a dead-end road that can lead to national disaster. America has strayed to the far country of racism and militarism. All men are made in the image of God. All men are brothers. All men are created equal. Every man is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Every man has rights that are neither conferred by nor derived 
from the state. They are God-given. Out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. What a marvelous foundation for any home. What a glorious and healthy place to inhabit. But America strayed away, and this unnatural excursion has brought only confusion and bewilderment. It has left hearts aching with guilt and minds distorted with irrationality. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to come back home. Come home, America. I call on Washington today. I call on every man and woman of goodwill all over America today. I call on the young men of America who must make a choice today to take a stand on this issue. Tomorrow may be too late. And don't let anybody make you think that God chose America as his divine messianic force to be a sort of policeman of the whole world. God has a way of standing before the nations with judgment, and it seems that I can hear God saying to America, you are too arrogant. Now, it isn't easy to stand up for truth and for justice. Sometimes it means being frustrated when you tell the truth and take a stand. Sometimes it means losing a job. It means being abused and scorned. It may mean having a seven, eight-year-old child asking your daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? I've long since learned that to be a follower of Jesus Christ means taking up the cross. And my Bible tells me that Good Friday comes before Easter. Before the crown we wear, there is the cross that we must bear. Let us bear it. Bear it for truth. Bear it for justice. And bear it for peace. Let us go out this morning with that determination. And I have not lost faith. I'm not in despair. I haven't lost faith. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when the lion and the lamb will lie down together and every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid because the words of the Lord have spoken it. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when all over the world we will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, 
free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last with this faith. We'll sing it as we are getting ready to sing it now. Men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not rise up against nations, neither shall they study war anymore. And I don't know about you, I ain't gonna study war no more. I consistently find Martin Luther King very refreshing, I must admit. And it's a measure of the desperation of the cabal who assassinated him that they couldn't even do so cleanly enough to keep his murder off their official government hands. In 1999, a civil trial found agents of the U.S. government responsible for his assassination. And if you didn't know that, that's an indication of just how effective corporate control of the media is at setting the agenda. There was the O.J. Simpson trial at the same time. Of course, they could have sent reporters, but none of the large U.S. papers deemed that to be a noteworthy finding. If you're interested in more such, I can recommend wikispooks.com, an accredited fake news source by the Washington Post, this being the new label for information outlets that the corporate media consensus are trying to discredit. So catch it while it's still online and uncensored, wikispooks.org. Now, let's continue with another great thinker as far as non-violence, a man who spent a large part of his life reflecting on the importance of real deep peace and how human beings could ever get there. Marshall Rosenberg. He centered a lot of his thought on this avoiding of enemy images, which provided my inspiration for this show. And this is taken from an NVC training course. Not sure exactly when. The speaker, of course, is Marshall Rosenberg. Now, to go about social change of this variety, where we don't see people as evil who are doing the actions that we see interfering with our needs being fulfilled, to go about social change out of that energy requires, at times, doing some despair work. Despair work as defined by Joanna Macy. And this kind of despair work helps us to deal with the pain that we're feeling as a result of what is happening, out of sometimes our feeling of powerlessness to do anything about it. When we do the kind of despair work that Joanna Macy talks about, we transform our feeling of powerlessness and despair, and it helps us to come out with a transformative spirituality. 
that's a term that Ken Wilbur terms, to use the kind of consciousness, the kind of spirituality that supports our social change effort. It's a spirituality in which we are energized by our consciousness of how life can be better served in another way, and we come out with joy and pleasure at the image of how it can be, rather than be motivated by anger and bitterness toward the people who are presently creating the structures that are. When we have this transformative spirituality, we need to integrate it with political consciousness. We need to really understand how the structures are working that are oppressing us. We have to watch out for the kind of spirituality that simply gets us trying to get the right attitude within ourselves that helps us to live happily and spiritually within a world where there's a lot of violence, out of the hope that if we can just transform ourselves, the energy radiating from us will contribute to change. I'm convinced that we need more than that kind of spirituality. We need a spirituality that not only helps us to transcend our bitterness and our anger, but that is integrated with a real consciousness of what is happening that's creating the violence and that mobilizes us to create change, not just to hope that by purifying ourselves the energy coming from us will create the change. One of my social change objectives for the last several years has been to do what I can do to contribute to transforming our judicial system from one based on the concept of retributive justice to one based on restorative justice. Our present judicial system, retributive justice, comes out of a spirituality that I'm very concerned about, that I feel does great violence on our planet. I talked about this in previous sessions. I'm talking about that kind of spirituality that is based on the concept that there are superiors who know what is right and who on the basis of their judgments have the right to punish or reward people. If people are judged as bad, then these people who call themselves superiors have a right to give these people what they deserve. This concept of deserve is central to the concept of retributive justice. And if the superior judges people as good, then they reward them. Our judicial system is based on this way of thinking, that there are people who know what's right and what's wrong and who therefore have the right to punish people when they deserve it. Within cultures that have this system, people in positions of authority use that concept of justice. So parents believe that since they are superior to children, 
They have the right to punish or reward them when they judge the child is deserving those treatments. Unfortunately, many teachers use the same form of spirituality based on these judgments by superiors. The concept that I'm interested in supporting is restorative justice, which is based on an entirely different way of thinking and leads to entirely different ways of exercising justice. Restorative justice has as its purpose to find ways of getting everyone's needs met so that peace and harmony can be retrieved when pain and conflict exist between parties. This kind of spirituality that looks for ways of getting everybody's needs met, that doesn't judge people as evil and deserving of punishment, it looks at a threefold situation. There's three parties that have to be dealt with whenever somebody's needs have not been met through a crime of some sort. There's the person who's been affected by the crime. We want to end in a way that this person is brought back to healing and in which their needs are fulfilled. A second party in this kind of justice is the person who acted in a way that created pain for others. We want to restore the situation by replacing whatever education led to this person behaving as they did is now replaced with an education that supports their contributing to people's well-being rather than doing things which create suffering for people. And the third party involved in restorative justice is the community that provided the education that contributed to the person's crime. We need to look at why is it that some people get their needs met by robbing, raping, and doing other things that cause great suffering. The old spirituality says this is because such people are evil and deserving to be punished and suffer for their actions. The spirituality of restorative justice says that these people are meeting their needs in the way they have been educated to meet their needs. So we need to have the surrounding community look at how are we providing education for people. And how have we failed in this situation? And what do we need to do to support this person learning a different way? And to look at how we are educating people and to make sure we are educating people to see that our well-being is one and the same, that we can never meet our own needs at other people's expense. Now, this concept of restorative justice is not a new one. There are many cultures throughout the world that have historically always used restorative justice and still do. Anthropologists Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, Ashley Montague have studied these cultures and describe how different is their spirituality and how different is 
their way of dealing with people who act in a way that creates pain and disharmony. So I'd like to now talk about what restorative justice looks like in these cultures that go about seeing justice in a radically different way, whose spirituality does not believe that people are evil or good. It believes that we all, when we're functioning in harmony with our nature, enjoy more than anything else contributing to one another's well-being. And therefore, when they see people doing things that contribute to pain on the part of others, that violate the rights of others, they do not interpret these people as evil or bad. They believe that the people must have forgotten the power they have to enrich life and how good it is to contribute to people's well-being. And therefore, they surround them with people who know them, and they have a circle in which these people around them remind them of all of the things that they have done that has enriched their lives. Because their spirituality doesn't imply that this person did what they did because they're evil and deserve to be punished. They believe that a person would only act that way if something has disconnected them, has made them forget that the good life is how we contribute to one another's well-being. And what a different world we would live in if we took a restorative rather than a retributive approach to justice. If whatever had happened, we drew a line under that and said, well, that was the past. How can we move forward together in a productive, in a healthy fashion might find huge numbers of prisoners free to go about their productive business. To use other words to express the same idea, we might find a lot of people unemployed. Money, of course, is one of the main means whereby people are encouraged to feel that they have no option but to do things that they're not actually spiritually in tune with. Now let's hear one relevant example to our discussion of enemy images. This comes to us courtesy of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. It's a video interview and the sound is actually sufficient for my purposes, but I will link to the original in case you're on the web and you'd like to see the interview. This is from 2016, and the speaker is Martin Wells, a former employee of public relations company Bell Pottinger from 2006 to 2008, and I believe I'm right in suggesting that Bell Pottinger got a large slice of hundreds of millions of dollars from the U.S. Defense Department for their assistance in creating enemy images to boost the Defense Department's business. I got a phone call from my agency 
who I worked with and got lots of work from, saying, would you like to work abroad? You've got an interesting role. And I was like, okay, but the interview's tomorrow. You need to get here for the interview tomorrow. And I was like, okay, yeah, no problem at all. I'll come on up. Um, the address I was given was in central London. Um, I went into the building, up to the sixth floor, and there were guards on the sixth floor, which I thought was quite odd. And um, it turned out to be a military media kind of intelligence unit. And they showed me around. We had a quick chat. And I must have been there for about 20 minutes, and that was it. And they said, right, great to see you. Thanks very much. And I asked, okay, so when will I hear if I've got the job? And they said, oh, no, you've got it. And said, where am I going? When do I start? They said, well, your tickets will be emailed to you later today. You'll be um, going out on Monday morning. Okay. This is a Friday. I'm talking to these guys. And I said, so where am I going? Oh, you're going to Baghdad. I was expecting to be in the green zone. But no, we were on a base called Camp Victory, um, which surprised me. So when I first arrived at the building that I was going to be working at, um, it struck me that it was a very secure building. Signs outside saying, do not come in. If you're not, it's a classified area. If you're not cleared, you can't come in. So when I first started working there, I didn't know how big a project this was. Um, I just assumed it was news gathering. Um, but having seen the process and worked in the process, I then realised this was a big project. And the budget was large as well um, for this project. It was around about 120 million a year for this project. And that's a lot of money. Whilst I was working there, there were three different types of strand, really. So we would do the news items that would go out on the news and go out on various channels locally. The kind of stories, a bomb would go off, a car bomb would go off, people would die, we would have people out there filming it, it would come back, we would then edit it into a story that would go out on various channels within the region. And we were to make it, as best we could, look as if it was made locally, which it is shot locally and it is edited locally. Um, it was more to make it look like it was Arabic, to make it look like it was shot in the region, which it was, but to make it look like it was created by Arabic TV almost. So it was given the impression that this was done by an Arabic company, in my view. And then there were um, what they call um, TVCs, which are television commercials, say Al-Qaeda are bad. There would also be things called VCDs, which we would make. The way I was approached about VCDs was, I was asked by my boss, um, we need to make this style of video um, and we've got to use Al-Qaeda's footage and all their propaganda out there to do it. We need it to be 10 minutes long and it needs to be in this file format and we need to encode it in this manner. And yeah, that's great. And we're going to track it via Google Analytics. All the VCDs that were made and quite a considerable amount um, were taken by Marines when they were going into various villages or they were doing raids, um, whatever patrols they were on, and they were dispersed that way. Um, that was the quickest, easiest, and also, I guess, the, the most sensible way of doing it. Because if they're raiding a house and they're going to make a mess of it looking for stuff anyway, they just drop an odd VCD there then when whoever comes back, they're going to pick it up and they're going to start checking stuff through. So it kind of made sense to, to do it that way. And these were discs that were made to play in a thing called Real Player. Um, 
And what happened to a real player is you'd get a white screen before anything would happen. They came up with this ingenious idea that within the white flash that real player does, it actually tracks where the VCD is being played because real player has to connect online to run. That little bit of code would then be connected to a Google Analytics account. And so that way you could have a track and know where that VCD is being played. So when you've, the VCD has been delivered, when they're watched and the tracking kicks, um, it makes a hit with analytics. And when you log into it, 24 hours later, it will tell you which IP address and where in the world it's been looked at. So, for instance, if one's looked at in the middle of Baghdad, okay, you know there's a hit there. Um, if one 48 hours later or a week later shows up in another part of the world, then that's the more interesting one. And that's what they're looking for more. Because then that gives you a trail of, okay, so someone sent it to this person or they've been here and they've gone elsewhere. So it gives you a track of somebody who could possibly be a threat. Some of the VCDs ended up in some interesting countries. I think I had a couple in Iran. Um, obviously in Iraq, in several places. Um, there were, I think there was one in Syria, but the most interesting one was in America. Um, no idea how it got there. Um, but all my job was to do was to collate that data and pass it on. So I would do a printout for the day. And if anything interesting popped up, hand it over to the bosses and then it would be dealt with from there. When we made something, um, the process would be, I would show it to my producer, they'd be happy with it. We would then get in seniors in the office, they'd be happy with it. Then we get the two colonels in to look at it, look at the things we'd done throughout the day. They'd be fine with it. It would then go to General Petraeus. He would then look at it and his team would look at it. And if they're happy with it, it would then go on up the line if it needed to. If he couldn't sign off on it, it would go up on the line to the White House and then it was signed off up there and the, the answer would come back down the line. I was in and out of Baghdad on this contract for over a year or so. Um, I just couldn't do it any longer. When you've got over 500 tapes with more atrocities than you can believe could ever be committed to another human being on, um, there's only so much you can take. Um, and also, you just think flying in and out of a war zone all the time, you're elevating that risk of not being able to come back home. So on the face of it, a fairly straightforward job situation where you have to do a task that's allotted, pass it up the line, someone else checks it, passes it up the line. A very familiar task to a lot of people in the 21st century. I think the further we go back, the less this would seem like an ordinary state of affairs. And on the evidence of what Martin Wells said towards the end, somebody obviously was very keen to expose him to a lot of videos of people abusing one another. Now, where did those productions of his actually go? Did they get up to the White House or not? Well, he wasn't there, he doesn't know, and he's not paid to know. Or you might even say he's paid not to know. How many of us, how many people who are paid do so 
exactly that. We can close our eyes and ears or close our mind to the consequences of particular pieces of work that we happen to be involved in. It seems to me that this money thing is more or less the crux of the enemy images. Not many of us are actually involved in a war situation. Not many of us are involved in creating images of enemies. We may or may not be exposed to lots of fear of terrorism, roughly according to how much commercially controlled media we consume. But I think the fear of running out of money, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is probably present in a lot more of our psyches. Not actually a natural human fear, of course. We know what hunger is. We know what homelessness is. But this tying of it to an abstract variable. In reality, there's plenty more places to live than there are people. Looking at things like offices and things like hotels. And yet many, many people are forced by guys with guns to sleep out. Now that is, to put it another way, capitalist society thrives on enemy images. If we didn't have enemy images, we wouldn't have capitalism. If we're using money, then we are not in a gift situation. I love the idea of a gift economy. There are people who have said to me, Robin, that's not practical. Just as it's not practical to do without defense against terrorism. But the more I look at this, the more it comes to my mind, actually the counter-terrorists are in league with the terrorists. That, again, when all said and done, the risks of terrorism are far, far less than risks of dying in a traffic accident, never mind preventable diseases like lung cancer. So it's being used to manipulate people by the people whom we heard about at the start of the show, those people who have been educated to show little concern about destroying the fabric of the South Vietnamese society when they felt it didn't serve their needs. Now, for more insight onto that type of mentality, for more insight into the programming which is undertaken by them, we've got a short section of a video. I couldn't find the whole video, but we have four and a bit minutes. There's some quite powerful images here, so I'm going to link to the original from this show's webpage on welcomeguests.net slash 746. This was turned up by The Intercept, and it's a video in which the Pentagon warn of an unavoidable dystopian future for the world's biggest cities. It's ripe with questionable assumptions, in my mind. As I say, powerful visuals to help it stick in the mind, for example, of a young and easily influenced army recruit full of goodwill, patriotism 
and a desire to serve his fellow man by defending his country against terrorism, for example. And doesn't have a date attached, but I think it's from 2016. Mega Cities, Urban Future, The Emerging Complexity The future is urban. By 2030, urban areas are expected to grow by 1.4 billion, with that growth occurring almost entirely in the developing world. Cities will account for 60% of the world's population and 70% of the world's GDP. The urban environment will be the locus where drivers of instability will converge. It is the domain that by the year 2030, 60% of urban dwellers will be under the age of 18. The cities that grow the fastest will be the most challenged as resources become constrained and illicit networks fill the gap left by overextended and undercapitalized governments. The risk of natural disasters compounded by geography, climate changes, unregulated growth, and substandard infrastructure intersect to frustrate humanitarian relief. Growth will magnify the increasing separation between rich and poor. Religious and ethnic tensions will be a defining element in the social landscape. Stagnation will coexist with unprecedented development as impoverishment, slums, and shanty towns rapidly expand alongside modern high-rises, technological advances, and ever-increasing levels of prosperity. This is the world of our future. It is one we are not prepared to effectively operate within, and it is unavoidable. Megacities are complex systems where people and structures are compressed together in ways that defy both our understanding of city planning and military doctrine. It is an ecosystem that demands a highly agile and adaptive force to successfully operate within. Infrastructures will vary radically, with concentrations of high-tech transportation, globally connected air and seaports, contemporary water, utilities and waste disposal intermixed with open landfills, overburdened sewers, polluted water, and makeshift power grids. Living habitats will extend from the high-rise to the ground-level cottage to subterranean labyrinths, each defined by its own social code and rule of law. Social structures will be equally challenged, if not dysfunctional, as historic ways of life clash with modern living, ethnic and racial differences are forced to live together, and criminal networks offer opportunity for the growing mass of unemployed. This becomes the nervous system of non-nation-state, unaligned individuals and organizations that live and work in the shadows of national rule. Where physical domains can be seen, digital domains will have limitless potential to breed and expand without limit. Digital security and trade will be increasingly threatened by sophisticated illicit economies and decentralized syndicates of crime to give adversaries global reach at an unprecedented level. This will add to the complexities of human targeting, as a proportionally smaller number of adversaries intermingle with a larger and increasing number of citizens. The scale and density of these domains is daunting. In a city of 10 million, where you hold the support of 99% of the population, the remaining 1% represents a threat of 100,000. It is an environment of convergence, hidden amongst the enormous scale and complexity of the megacity. These are the future breeding grounds, incubators, and launching pads for adversaries and hybrid threats. Linked globally, these are man-made labyrinths that provide refuge and movement across the vast sections of these cities where alternate forms of governance have taken control. The advice of doctrine, from Sun Tzu to current field manuals, has provided two fundamental options. Avoid the cities, or establish a cordon to either wait out the adversary, or drain the swamp of non-combatants and engage the remaining adversaries in high-intensity conflict within. Even our counterinsurgency doctrine, honed in the cities of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan, 
is inadequate to address the sheer scale of population in the future urban reality. From the streets of Aachen to the Citadel and Way, we have defeated adversaries who attempted to use urban terrain to their advantage. Urban conflict is written deep into the army's histories. But in tomorrow's conflict, these megacities are orders of magnitude greater in complexity, and our current options do not meet strategic ends. Our future operations must allow us to... Now, I'm afraid that's where my video closes rather abruptly. So, particularly if you've seen the images, I think you will agree that that five minute of Pentagon prognostication is saturated in enemy images. Not a lot of US flags on offer, a lot of people fighting, riots, various different squalid situations, suffering, not an optimistic vision of the future. A stark contrast with my ambitions, my hopes for the future, and I think the hopes of a very large proportion of humanity. A world of people happy to meet one another's needs, happy to be part of the solution for a hundred percent of us, not for ninety-nine and certainly not for one percent. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that we're going to get to that situation under the current set of assumptions. I've focused this time on enemy images. I did just about manage to avoid going into one about money. But yes, money has been very, very effective through millennia as a tool of divide and conquer a deliberately scarce fictional resource which is created, conjured up out of nothing, one might almost say, in order to set brother against brother, worker against worker. And I think a lot of shallow observations about human nature can be put down to a result of the scarcity that is endemic in those societies where human interaction is heavily mediated by use of money. In this episode, I've looked more at enemy images. This is certainly not intended as an abstract set of thoughts. I started with Douglas Valentine on South Vietnam and the Phoenix program, um, the next episode of Guns and Butter, which I think I might put in Unwelcome Guests, shows that he's clearly done a lot of thinking about what the implications are for U.S. society, as he made quite clear with that initial quote. He's not of the opinion that that's what U.S. citizens do when they're abroad. When they're at home, it somehow changes. If we apply that cold calculating logic to domination of a foreign society, it's very clear U.S. as invaders and how they could seek to subjugate that society, such a small number of them, albeit with technical superiority as far as delivering of death through technical devices. Now what about looking at the U.S. in the 21st century with these fusion centers, with various 
different supposed counter-terror operations. Well, we know the etymology of the counter-terrorists. They were the people who went into the villages and committed atrocities. It doesn't give me a lot of hope for the humanity and the mercy of the counter-terror as dished up 21st century style. Now, remembering we have the likes of Bell Pottinger, other such public relations firms to spend the U.S. taxpayers' dollars on terrorizing the U.S. taxpayers. Uh, One huge part of this military-industrial complex that we haven't really looked at is the so-called defense industry, that is to say the arms industry. I think we're probably due a look at that, how that fits in. Of course, they have very direct economic interest in promulgating these enemy images. Now, we've looked in the past a lot at false flag operations. That is, of course, only a small, albeit active, part of this mythology of competition, this mythology of these radical, violent extremists who are so ruthless that they can only be successfully opposed by the powers of nation-states. I remain fundamentally optimistic about the world and the fact that I have the source material freely available on the internet to make this kind of social critique suggests to me that because it's based on deception and all the information needed to prove a point is out there, it's a fundamentally unstable proposition. I don't think this is people with a long-term plan. Yeah, this is how we're going to bring in a technological control grid. There may be some people with some of those aspirations. I think this is people motivated by fear, their own enemy images, kicking the can down the road and doing what they thought worked last time. I think in the longer term, well, humanity, to think about climate change, to pick just one example, does have some really serious issues to address. And the sooner we can kick these enemy images into touch, the sooner we can get down to looking at the real issues about how we're going to survive on this planet. How can we alleviate the worst of the effects which we've already set in train. This and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. And if you'd like to download them a hundred at a time, you can do so from the downloads page. Many thanks again to Bonnie Faulkner and Douglas Valentine for the inspirational interview and to GDR Playing Field for reminding me that I was still interested in making the occasional unwelcome guests episode. And thanks to everybody who's given me feedback on the show. Take your money.